I started by really designing like this huge go-to-market for LinkedIn for me, which was who's my intended audience? What is the outcome that I want them to have? What is the mantra that I want to rally around? What are the four core pillars that I think are most important to achieving that mantra? What are 12 strong opinions that I have that I can write about every day? And what does my data show me are the most popular structures or formats of how I write? Welcome to another episode of Hyperia Presents. In this episode, I talk to Justin Welsh. Justin helps businesses scale faster through sales. He advises multi-million dollar companies. In this episode, we distill how small business owners can grow their business faster. Justin uses something called the pastor technique to increase conversions. You'll also learn interesting techniques how to grow your LinkedIn audience faster. My name's Unique, co-founder of Hype Fury, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Justin, tell us a little bit about how you became an entrepreneur. Yeah. So, you know, I spent the first really six years of my career in sales, did really bad job, got fired from my first three jobs, wasn't very successful. And when I was 29, I got sort of a fourth chance at becoming successful. I, I joined a early stage startup company called ZocDoc. And I was the second sales hire and the 10th employee there. And uh, something just happened where I moved to New York City. It was the energy of the city, the, the really incredible team, this great product in sort of my own maturity. All these things just sort of intersected and I had a lot of success. And I grew my career there over five years, turned that into an executive role at a company called Patient Pop in Los Angeles. And in my first attempt as being an executive as the SVP of sales there, um, grew it from its very first dollar in revenue to about 50 million in recurring in, in around four and a half years. And after that, I kind of burned out, to be honest. And so my journey towards entrepreneurship was really the result of burnout. And I thought, you know, I, I do my own thing. So I opened my own advisory firm and I've been doing that for almost the last two years. Cool. And so I saw on your LinkedIn page that you also worked at GlaxoSmithKline. Was that uh, one of the companies you were fired at or... Yeah, it was. It was. And it was a bummer because my dad worked there for 40 years. and um, But he wasn't the one who fired you. He was not. My boss was the one who fired me. I still remember getting fired at a Panera Bread. So yeah, I was there almost almost three years, but it ended pretty poorly. But you stayed in the medical world for a couple of years after. Yeah, I, I ended up at Stryker, which is a med device company. So working in the operating room. And I didn't do very well and I didn't love it very much, but I learned how to work under pressure. There's nothing worse than when something you're selling in the operating room starts to malfunction in the middle of a surgery and you're on the hook for fixing it. And that taught me how to deal with stress and anxiety in the moment. And so I, I took that, I think, into, into the SaaS world. Cool. And so right now you're being hired at more like an advisor. Can you tell us a little bit about what you, what you do and what kind of you know, things people ask you? Yeah. So I've made my mark in the SMB SaaS world. So where I'm really niched is highly transactional early stage SaaS companies that sell a product anywhere from 5K to 20K in annual contract value. And they're moving units quickly. Two week, three week sales cycle, sometimes as short as one call. 
And so I've gained experience growing a business from its first dollar to 50 million. And a lot of companies are at 2 million, 3 million. They're trying to understand how to put systems and processes in place. And so their CEOs usually come to me and work with me as a peer advisor. So they meet with me weekly or biweekly, or they might just simply call me on the phone or send me an email with questions. And I think what they're really trying to do is avoid expensive mistakes and cut down on the amount of swings and misses that they take when getting their sales and marketing engines up and running. Interesting. And so uh, a sales week, uh, like a, a sales process that takes about two to three weeks, what does that entail? What kind of products do people buy then? How does it work? Yeah, it's mostly B2B. So when I'm working with companies, they're selling, I'll give you some examples. I work with a lot of healthcare technology companies because that's where I've spent the last 11 years of my career. So often they're selling marketing solutions, patient communication tools, reputation management software. Uh, it's always usually like a software license that is, again, since it's cheaper, it's usually 5K to 15K a year. It's a quick decision. It's not an enterprise sale. It's not a community buying atmosphere where you have seven decision makers in a room. It's usually you're getting one decision maker on the room that's that owns a small business, whether it's a doctor or a lawyer or somebody who owns an automobile you know, repair shop. And they have a challenge and they want a solution. And so my goal is to not only convert the amount of times that they say yes, but to have them say yes faster. And so when I work with companies, I help them put systems and processes in place that just allow those decisions to be made faster and more frequently. And so there's like a system to getting the leads, getting to qualify them, and then selling the part. So can you explain a little bit about how that works, how you qualify them or how you help those businesses qualify the leads, nurture them, and then, and then sell? Yeah, for me, it's really on a, on a case-by-case basis. So I'll give you an example. Most companies that I start to work with are early stage enough where they're talking to me about leads. And so my first couple of questions just might be, what is a lead? Right? Because a lead's anything. I can get you a lead. Give me a, a CSV file of 10,000 people and I'll send you an email blast. I'll get you leads, right? What I really care about are marketing qualified leads. And marketing qualified leads, that's not up to me. That's up to their business. And to me, the question I want to ask is, what are one or two or three pieces of objective criteria that means that somebody is looks like they are a good fit for your platform, right? Whatever you sell, reputation software, marketing software, whatever. And so I want to determine what's an MQL, what is truly a marketing qualified lead. And then I want to start holding their marketing team accountable to delivering a quantity of those leads over a certain period of time. Once I've figured out what that is, the next thing I want to do is determine What's a sales qualified lead? So let's take, uh, for example, like the, the marketing software. What would be like the key indicators that qualify a lead as a marketing qualified lead? Sure. So uh, I'll give you an example of my last business, Patient Pop, who I still advise for. So they sell a marketing solution for physicians who own their own private practices. But and there's about a million physicians in this country that own a private practice. Unfortunately, there's also a significantly uh, large number of physicians that don't own their own private practice. They work for a hospital. They're salaried employees. And it's really hard to sell software to people who don't care whether or not their practice grows because they're on salary. And so when we run marketing campaigns, whether it's PPC advertising, webinars, whatever the campaign may be, you're going to get a number of physicians that are interested in that topic and come in but are unfortunately employed by a hospital. If they check a box that says I'm employed by a hospital, they're not an MQL. If they say I'm a private practice physician and I'm interested in marketing my practice, then they're objectively an MQL. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Okay, so you've created like a, a set of you know check boxes where you can say, okay, this is an MQL. How do you move them to become an SQL? 
and how does you know the rest of the process go? Yeah, so an SQL means that they have a sales touch. So generally, once something is an MQL, I'm deploying a sales team. And the three things I care about when deploying a sales team is how fast do we get to the MQL? How many touches do we make on the MQL? And how long do we work it? So how fast, how many, and how long? And once you get to that MQL, what we're trying to figure out, at least objectively, is do they have a problem that we can solve? So if I get the physician on the phone and they say, I looked at your marketing software, I'm interested in building a new website and improving my SEO and beating my competition, then we have three reasons that they should work with PatientPop. So in that example, they are now qualified as a sales qualified lead. Interesting. Okay. And so the next step is probably getting them on the phone and actually understanding their goals and hopefully doing the sale. That's right. And we call that a sales accepted lead. And so usually the qualifier is what you might call a sales development rep. They qualify the lead and their goal is to set a demonstration for an account executive. And the account executive is doing a few things. They're jumping on, they're giving a custom demonstration to the challenges they learned about. They're trying to solve those things through a custom demonstration. That's number one. But before they do that, they're making sure that everything that that sales development rep said about the challenges is in fact true. Does this physician truly have those challenges and is patient pop a solution for those challenges? Once they say yes, and that person shows up and completes the demonstration, we now have a sales accepted lead. And so these are just simply stages that I'm measuring throughout the funnel from marketing to sales to implementation and post-sale. Interesting. One thing I'm always curious about is I get that people want to qualify me and I've been qualified many times and then I get to see the demo. Why don't people qualify and then say, okay, well, we've got great news for you. We can help you and then do the demo. For me, it's a big waste of time, but I've never had that when, you know, they say, okay, well, okay, you're qualified. I'm not going to give you a demo. Instead, they say, well, you're qualified. I'm going to schedule a new meeting for you and then you'll get the demo. Yeah, it's too bad. I think that's a missed opportunity. So for us, we would call that a warm transfer and we would try and do that as often as possible. Hey, Dr. Smith, looks like you're really you know, bummed out about your SEO. It's not performing well. Your reputation's uh, poor on Yelp. You want to get that fixed? You have some time right now? For us, we're getting the, the physician at the highest level of engagement. We never punted the demonstration intentionally. It was simply, we worked with healthcare providers and usually they're on to the next patient, delivering a baby, jumping into surgery. So it was hard to nail it right then and there, but if we could, we would. Okay, and so the next step is the demo. You got people excited. How do you then close them? And you know, how do you keep you know, uh, adding to like lifetime value? What are things that'll you know, increase lifetime value? Yeah, for me, I use a model that's stolen from copywriting. So I'm sure you know, in your world, you've seen great copywriting on a long form landing page that really takes you through um, emotional stages that gets you to buy quickly. My goal is always to get people to buy quickly. And so I use a copywriting method called PASTOR, P-A-S-T-O-R. And what it means is, after I learn about their challenges, I try and speak those challenges back to them to really get them to feel their pain. That's the P in pastor. Once I get them to feel their pain, I want to amplify their pain. That's the A in pastor. I really amplify it. I want them to feel existential dread in their heart. I know that sounds really cruel, but I want them to feel existential dread. Once they do, I tell the story. That's S. So I tell a story of how we solve that very specific problem. And then I move on to T, which is a transformation. Here is someone that was just like you feeling those very same pains and how they transformed. I make an offer. Here is the package that we serve that I think is best fit for your practice or your, your business. And then I do R, which is 
give me a response. Would you like to start today? Here's the easiest way to get started. So P-A-S-T-O-R, that method I employ from copywriting into my sales organizations. That's interesting. And can we uh, use the pastor analogy with uh, like the marketing solution? I think many founders who are listening right now, they have a marketing solution or in, are in the space and they'd like to learn you know, how to use this method. Yeah. Are you looking for an example or do you mean from a marketing perspective, how do you use it? Yeah. So I'm envisioning now the landing page, you no, know, and I'm, I'm reading about the P and the A and the S and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. So pain is simply, let's, let's use like hype theory, for example, right? A pain is that can't grow your Twitter audience, right? You can't grow your Twitter, your Twitter following. That is a, a pain, but that is really a technical or surface level pain. Like what does that actually mean, right? So you need to amplify that. So you amplify that by sharing the things that people are missing out on by not being able to grow their Twitter audience. They're missing out on unique job opportunities, incredible partnerships, additional income or revenue streams. You know, it's all the FOMO stuff, being a part of the group of, you know, big time Twitter creators, getting a blue check mark. There's all these different ways that you can amplify that, right? And then you tell the story of, of Hype Fury. What are the, the features and benefits of how Hype Fury actually works to grow your Twitter following and help you accomplish all of those things that we just talked about? And then it's a simple transformation. And for landing pages, that's usually social proof, right? Videos of people talking about how they had no followers and went to 13,000. I went from 4,000 to 25,000, landed a new job opportunity and got a blue check mark, right? And then the offer is your pricing pages, right? Your th here are three options. And then your R is your call to action, right? Get started today. Start growing today for only a dollar. Start your first month for free. It's pretty simple. Like and that's ad hoc off the top of my head. I'm sure there's much better copy that we could write. But that is to me the way that landing pages and sales teams should be demonstrating in SMB SaaS. Very nice. Very nice. I think still a lot of founders struggle with this. You know, what would be like exercises for them they could do or how could they, you know, without a decade of experience like you work on something like this? Well, I mean, I think the easiest thing to do is to simply educate yourself around copywriting. The best thing that I ever did for writing on social media was to just read about copywriting, right? There are so many great resources out there, but if you don't have the time to read about it, I might consider before you hire anybody who's related to your sales organization, hire a marketer. I think marketing comes before sales. I don't want to go out and look for sales. I want interested in people with high intent to come into my funnel. And that is usually generated through marketing. So the second step I might suggest is hire marketing. If you don't have time to read copywriting books and you don't have time to hire marketers, the third thing, and probably something you should be doing as a founder all the time is listening to your customers and your prospects, right? Interviewing, talking to people, what are their pains? What are their fears? What do they hope to transform into? Doing interviews like that can be really telling and help you generate good language for your landing page and your sales pitch. Yeah, very good. Yeah, and I think there are a lot of technical founders who are pretty scary about talking to their users. Plus, they just they want to build cool stuff and they think, well, people will come if I build it, which is generally not the case. They will not. <laughs> right. It, most of the time, they will not. There are definitely companies that have proven otherwise. But even those companies that have proven otherwise, like Slack as an example, right? They started off with no sales team. They have a sales team now. Yeah, exactly. And is that also because they transitioned to more like a, not really enterprise sales, but they're being used by huge companies as well. Is that one of the reasons you think? Or I mean, I think there's a few reasons. I think that in order to get a widespread adoption inside of a company, you need to strategically sell into those companies. I think that's probably number one. And I think number two, we all live in a, in a bubble in technology. Like 
a lot of us who are on Twitter or, or another social media platform, we know about a lot of these companies and we forget that the external folks who aren't spending their days scrolling through Twitter feeds aren't as in my buddies who aren't in technology don't know a lot about Slack, which I think is crazy. And so in order to reach those companies, you need to go out and, and actively pursue them. And so I think it's once your early adopters have leaned in, it's how do you go further than that? Interesting. So I've seen on your LinkedIn profile that you've also advised businesses to um, get funding in the process. Do you also, you know, look into their sales cycle, get their cost per acquisition down or get their lifetime value up in order to get a better funding round? Or how, how do you work with that? I work with them on their key metrics that usually influence funding rounds, right? So the way that I think about things are, how can we target our customers more effectively? Even if the cost remains the same to acquire a lead, how can we convert a larger percentage of those leads and do it faster? I think often people think about conversion rates as being how many of, which is part of a conversion rate. But what they don't think about is how fast can we? If you can move your sales cycle from 14 days to seven days, then you can do twice as much inside of the same given period of time. And that means more revenue, higher growth. If we can improve conversion rates, even keeping cost per lead the same, it means we move our cost to acquire a customer down. I talk about downstream. How do we get customers to step in and buy more of what boosts their lifetime value, but also keeps them excited about the product? And really just adjusting that LTV, that CAC, some of the metrics and, and things that investors look at when they're, they're making investment rounds. I don't go in and participate by any means, but I help them work on the metrics that I think set them up for success. Interesting. I think yeah, a lot of founders also underestimate the fact that you know if they give a 30-day trial, it takes at least 30 days before the revenue kicks in. And if you have a, like a small marketing budget, you have to wait for a long time to see impact. And then once they pay, then you can reinvest and get more customers. Where as you, you know, shorten the trial length, like 14 days or seven days, you'll be able to iterate faster, and you'll you know you can get more budget in and grow faster. Absolutely. And so we we look at. What I try and do is when I think about SaaS, I think about compound interest. So I think people forget that by increasing all of the conversion rates from MQL to SQL to SAL to closed one to how fast they buy something else to how often they renew, if you can improve all of those by one or 2% over the course of time, that compounds significantly. And so Founders are often early on focused on close rate, like this one metric of like how many customers that we talk to or prospects close. And while I appreciate that, and it is one lever, how can we pull all the other levers to make sure that we're getting as much compounding as we can? And, and those are some of the things that I help them focus on. And so for like, you know, businesses below 10K, I think we, in our audience, you know, we don't, we don't have a lot of people who have like a revenue of 2 million. What would you say are the things you would you know, turn? What wheels would you turn if you have like a business that does 10K uh, MRR? What are the key metrics you look at? What do you optimize for? I might optimize for a few different things. I think I would optimize for, for cost per lead. That might be one thing if you're running marketing campaigns and, and then understanding of the leads that I'm getting, how many of them are truly a fit for my product. And so what I would look at are where I'm spending, what channels I'm spending on, and which of those channels is bringing me not just leads, but actually qualified leads for my software at a reasonable cost. What I might look at next is how fast can I turn those reasonable leads from trial users into paid users? And so 
you can shorten a trial from 28 days to 14 days, but that doesn't necessarily improve the amount of people that become customers. It gives them a faster window to have to make a choice. But to me, I would want to understand trial behavior. So how can we understand how users interact with our software? How often do they log in? How often do they create content? If you're like using Hype Fury as an example, how often do they create content? How often do they you know, select an evergreen post? How often do they turn on a feature that we offer them? And what I would look at is commonalities across those who become customers from prospects. What are the average steps that a prospect takes to become a customer? And I would try and encourage the average prospect to go through those steps. And by pushing them through those steps, I would have a hypothesis that a larger number of prospects would become customers. And so I would run those tests and I would look at the data, see what happens, and then I would continually iterate to see how fast can we force people into paid subscriptions and what are the steps and how quickly can we get them through those steps that we think indicate they will become a good paying customer. I think outside of that, I would measure user behavior from the time they start paying through their paid subscription. So some of the same behaviors that I, I mentioned earlier on, how often are they logging in? How often they're actually you know, posting content and say, great, the average user who uses our software for 12 to 18 months looks like X. The average person who cancels within the first 90 days looks like Y. How can we take our normal user on the X journey instead of the Y journey? So those are just some small examples of how I might think about it. But B2C, you know, sort of e-commerce transactional is not really my competency. I'm more of a B2B SaaS advisor. So, but those would be things I would think about. All right. So one of the things that uh, really struck out when I saw you was the fact that you have a great LinkedIn growth tactic. I want to dial into that. Can you tell me, how did you, you know, jump into that, what we can call a niche or whatever, but how did you jump into that? How did you, you know, iterate and test things and, and, and see what worked? Yeah, it all started by accident. You know, I was, I knew that I was going to step down from my role in mid 2018 and it took another year uh, for me to do it, but I had this hypothesis that getting some attention online would be helpful. And to be honest, like I just picked LinkedIn. It was just arbitrary. Like I knew a few people that were doing well on it. Twitter, I thought of as like a place you went and read news. It was, this was like a different age, I guess, of Twitter for me. But so I just picked it. And so I started writing and I wrote with no intention. I wrote for dopamine, right? Trying to get some attention and I didn't do very well. And after like six to eight months of writing, I had one post that really took off. People were like four or five, you know, engagements on my post. And then I got like 25,000 and 1.5 million views on one story. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And I had been reading copywriting books leading up to that story. And so I thought, oh, this is a good investment of my time. So I continued to read and I continued to write. And over time, once I quit my job, I started to, to really systematize my outreach for LinkedIn. And so I started by really designing like this huge go-to-market for LinkedIn for me, which was who's my intended audience? What is the outcome that I want them to have? What is the mantra that I want to rally around? What are the four core pillars that I think are most important to achieving that mantra? What are 12 strong opinions that I have that I can write about every day? And what does my data show me are the most popular structures or formats of how I write? And so I started to track all that data using a tool called Shield. And then I started to sort of match up my opinions with those structures using a matrix and create using 
the right time of day based on the data that I was seeing. And I went from, you know, a couple thousand followers to just about to surpass 75,000 here in the last maybe 18 months or so. Interesting. So let's unpack that first message that, you know, got over a million impressions. What did you do and why did, what did it do so well? Yeah, it was interesting. It was really just a long form copy story. And it was a story that I thought might resonate based on my experience. So at the time, I was the SVP of sales of a rapidly growing software business. And a lot of my followers were younger or less experienced salespeople. And so the story that I told you in the beginning of how I was fired from my first three jobs, I thought it's probably pretty interesting to people who want to become an executive someday to know that I was an executive today, but I had actually had a terrible start to my career. I thought that might resonate with some people. So I put it into the pastor framework. And I started working around and making sure that it looks good and took people through an emotional journey and hit post and it took off. And I was very, very surprised. But, um, you know, it was the start of a, a pretty interesting writing career. Cool. And so I have a friend here in the Netherlands. He posts a lot of PowerPoints, like where, where you can slide through on LinkedIn. He uses that same thing over and over and over again. He just he gives like marketing advice on, uh, on LinkedIn. And then below the post, he comments, hey, uh, I want to subscribe to my newsletter and get more stuff like this. That does really, really well. You know, he gets a, a couple of hundred subscribers every post. That's a totally different tactic. Again, you said you took people through the pastor analogy. And what did you see happen? Were there mostly people who responded to your message and say, wow, this is great. Uh, tell me more. Or were just people liking or what, what, what happened? Yeah. At that point in time, I had no intention for what I was doing. So I didn't have anywhere to drive people. I wasn't doing it for any particular reason other than I thought that by having a really good following when I went out on my own, that that would be beneficial in some way, shape, or form. And only over a year's worth of time of practice did I start to figure out how to not only get that attention, and people hate when I call it attention, but that's what it is. I mean, anyone who tells you it's not just attention is lying to themselves. And, I, and so once I started to get some of that attention and started to really use it with intention, I started to figure out what the right ask was for my audience. So my ask is not to join a newsletter or engage with my stuff. My ask is to buy courses. Because you sell a course where you actually explain the entire system you use to grow on LinkedIn. That's, that's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And to be honest, like I don't make an ask all that often because I think of things as an ask budget. I think it's 80-20 Pareto's law, right? Which is just basically 80% of the time I'm giving value and 20% of the time I'm making an ask. I'm closer to probably 90-10 or 95-5. And so when I make that ask, I don't. I want to make sure it's not for a newsletter. It's for you know revenue. That's a good one. Yeah, I use the, the the brand bank analogy where you you know you give or take. You know, you rather have your be in the in the red instead of the black. You know, it's it's saying with you know if you if you put ads in people's faces, that's taking away their time, and you don't want to do that. So yeah, interesting. Okay, so pastor, and you also said you looked at timing when to post. Well, I'm still thinking, okay, a bunch of people won't, won't see your post, but in the end, if your post is good, it's going to you know, go off anyway. Totally. I think just like if you send a good email, it's, you know, it's likely to get read, but there are definitely times when people are more likely to open their email. And so I treat LinkedIn like I might treat a sales process. When we reach out to prospects, I want to give ourselves the best opportunity to engage with them. And so again, I use a, a tool called Shield and it, and it helps me kind of follow all of the things I've been doing and really understand the data really well. 
And so for me, what I found is that the best time is in the morning when people are waking up and logging in for the first time, especially during COVID. And so I write every morning at 7.15 central time. And the cool thing is every once in a while, I'll make mention of that. And so, you know, Twitter has automated notifications when your favorite content creators create content. LinkedIn does not have that. And so I make sure to mention that at least once a month. And so the folks who really like my content are usually there and waiting around 7.15. And they're not just there and waiting because they like it. They're there and waiting because there's benefit to them in engaging with my content because it helps them grow their audience as well. And so um, I post at the right time and uh, you know I've, I've alerted my audience to when that time is. And that's a win-win situation for both of us. That's interesting. And so you have people who constantly comment on your stuff because that'll grow their account as well? Yeah, it's, it's kind of like siphoning, right? Like, you know, you know Twitter real well. If you, if you comment underneath a large account enough times, you know, there's f- two things that happen. One is a lot of people see it, number one. And number two is people make a connection between you and that person. And they make an assumption that you two know each other, run in the same circle, or aligned in some way, shape, or form, even if that's not true. And so it's a good brand building exercise for people that have a small following is to comment on posts and content of those with large followings. That's interesting. Yeah, it works well on Twitter. I've done it in the past. I'm not, I, yeah. <laughs> I'm not doing it that much anymore. But I, yeah, I didn't know it was a thing on LinkedIn as well, which is logically that it is. You know, it's interesting that, you know, people, if you see a good comment on LinkedIn, I guess people will also click through to, to that profile and check you out. And, and yeah. Yeah, I actually build something called my LinkedIn ecosystem, where I kind of hack together the notifications, which is I find four or five people who have large audiences like I do, and who are relevant to me, but in a slightly different way. And I just reach out and say, hey, when do you usually write content? Because LinkedIn's not like Twitter, you're not writing content all day long, you're usually posting once. And so I say, when do you write your content? And they say, oh, I write at 8am. And so I just bookmark their content with a bookmark that says 8am. And when they post their content, I'm magically the first person there. And not only do I get a lot of engagement on my comments, but I siphon their audience, right? I start to take people from their audience who may not know about me and add them to my audience. And so that's a, a tactic that I use on the platform. It's interesting. And I think I got that from your um, content somewhere that you change actually the primary button. It's normally it's connect on LinkedIn and then you have to write a message, blah, blah, blah. But yours is actually follow. That's right. I forget how to do it. It's like a hacky workaround, but you can change it from connect to follow. And what it does for me is it keeps my connections low and it keeps my follower count high. And therefore, I can connect truly with people who I want to see in my feed and keep it really curated. And so I do that. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Also, you know, if you have that follow button, also, I think it elevates you above the, above the rest because totally. not, not everybody knows about it. That's right. <laughs> this guy must be special. I'm not. Newsflash. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> so let's dig into a little bit more of, you know, things that work on LinkedIn. So you mentioned the pastor thing. What other things do you use a lot and where, where you see a lot of engagement on? Yeah, I like to mix up my styles. And so like I shared the other day in a newsletter, like a very simple way to get more engagement. And so like Twitter has 280 characters, LinkedIn, I think has 1300. So there's much more space to write. And a lot of times when people write, they write things that are helpful. They'll say like four ways to do X, right? Whatever the X is in this example. And like, that's cool. And they'll definitely get some people to read it, especially if the information's good. But in my theory is always, 
there's everyone scrolling. So I don't want anyone to get to the juicy information unless I can get them to stop scrolling. And so usually I write the actual meat of my content, the information, the thing I'm teaching or showing or using. I write that first. And then I go to the top and I say, okay, now that I've got that written, how do I get people to actually stop scrolling and pay attention? So I'll write what's called a hook. And this doesn't really exist on Twitter. It doesn't in an extent, but LinkedIn a little different. LinkedIn on a text post has five lines before you have a see more button. And the goal is to get them to click see more so that they're hooked then, they're in, they might as well read the thing, right? And so I try and use that space to be as enticing as possible. And I try and use that fifth line to ask a question, be compelling, make a bold statement, something that will get them to click see more. Once they do, there's the meat of the content, the thing I'm actually trying to teach. They learn something, which is great. Then my next goal is to get them to engage. And by engaging, it spreads the post, it becomes more shareable. And so rather than have them go back to the top and reread the entire post to try and think about what they want to say, I just neatly summarize the post in the end with one or two quick lines. So as they get to the end, they say, oh yeah, this is the summary. And now I can very easily participate in the conversations. So that's just an example of one structure I might deploy to, you know, grow my following, get more engagement. But that's one of, you know, eight or nine different structures that I use. And I just, I randomize, to be honest. What are some of the hooks that work really, really well? Yeah. So I mean, a, a very simple example might be like, I started posting on LinkedIn in 2018. And after 33 million impressions in 2020, two major things stood out. And then it's like, oh, I want to know what those things are, right? What are those two things? See more. And then I list the two things. I package it up. You know, it's very simple, right? And it just comes from, it's like a call to action, but it's a call to see more. And so like today, I think I saw someone use one where it said something like, it's actually my wife's post. She said, she's talking about the GameStop situation. And she said, she talks about investing each morning. She said something like, it's a great underdog story. It's really cool to see what happened. But there's one thing that really bothered me about this particular event. And it's like, oh, what bothered her? Simple again, click see more and you're onto the post. So it's pretty simple, but it's better than having really good information never be discovered because you weren't able to hook the audience in. Yeah, that's a good one. So it can be a combination of like FOMO, well, I need to know this, or hey, this is a credible guy. He's got some great stats. I want to know this. I don't want to miss this. Yeah, totally. It's like, I mean, it's the same like Substack or any newsletter where it's, you know, here's the first paragraph and it's like, you want to keep reading? It's no different than that. By the way, it's not something I do every day because I think it's it's easy to see and you don't want to be repetitive. So I have all these different formats that I might use and that's just one example. So let's say you only have like 100 connections on LinkedIn. What's a good way to you know increase those and really get you know the engagement and the, the follower count up? Pick a micro niche, something that you're you could talk about for 30 minutes unprepared. So everyone can talk about something for 30 minutes unprepared. And usually that thing is is quite niche So try and get it down to as small of a niche as possible. Write one thing about that every morning and then go find five to 10 people who are relevant to that topic and interact with them each morning, each day. And if you do that, you will grow slowly, but at some point in time, you will go from 100 followers to 2,000. And then you'll go from 2,000 to 4,000. And then things really start to compound. My thing with people is there's no hacks, there's no tricks. It's consistency and patience. And so, you know, there are ways you can speed it up in the the three sort of pillars are do it every day, be on the platform every day, write or record or whatever, draw consistently. 
and then interact with people in the community that are relevant to your topic each morning. And if you do that for four to six months, you will grow a following. And then you can try some other more advanced tactics, you know, LinkedIn Live, getting on video more often, hosting a webinar. There's a million things you can do, but start with the basics. Cool. Thank you very much, Justin. This was really fun. Where can people find you? Yeah, if they want to learn just about me personally, they can go to my website. It's justinwelsh.me. And my last name is W-E-L-S-H, justinwelsh.me. Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Justin Sass, Justin S-A-A-S, or they can email me at hello at justinwelsh.me. Justin, thank you very much. Appreciate it, man. That's a wrap on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next show. If you enjoyed this one, please leave an iTunes review and give us a shout out on Twitter with your favorite part. See you again next week.